Section 50 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Peter. The World Story, Volume 15. The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 50. A Description of Trench Life. By René Nicolas. So I examine my domain. It is not very extensive, one hundred and twenty meters at the most, occupied by my sixty men. My trench is composed of the communication trench and two large salients, each containing half a section or two squads. Its general arrangement is as follows. Each of the salients is divided in the middle by a bomb shield, and contains therefore two squads, whose dugouts, rather deep, are at the right and left ends of the salient. In front, in shell holes, the listening patrols are posted during the night. There are machine guns in each of the salients. My headquarters are so placed that I am in immediate touch with both my half-sections. A little winding trench leads to my dugout, which is about two meters underground. It is comfortable and contains a rather dilapidated hair mattress which the Germans, formerly proprietors of this little trench, brought over from the village of Perth's. A set of shelves made of three boards has on it some old tin cans, along with the things I have taken out of my haversack. Two or three pegs stuck in the dirt wall serve as clothes hooks. The furnishing is completed by a wooden stool brought from the village, and by a brazier in which charcoal is burning. In one corner are some trench rockets and a large case of cartridges. This domicile is not at all bad. It is almost luxurious. The dugouts of my soldiers are large undergrounds, holding fifteen men comfortably. Straw helps ward off the dampness of the soil of Champagne, and discarded bayonets stuck in the walls serve as hooks for canteens and haversacks. Meanwhile, as the cold was a bit sharp, I had some braziers made for the men by piercing holes in old tin cans with bayonets. Charcoal was brought up from the kitchens. So life was sufficiently endurable. We felt pretty secure. The loopholes were well protected, and one could fire comfortably. The machine guns were always in readiness, and in short, the Germans over opposite did not seem malicious. All that could be seen of them were white streaks across the land, many and intertwined, with wire entanglements alongside. That was all. Nothing that budged or had the least human semblance, only here and there a sort of ragged, bluish heap that seemed a part of the earth on which it lay. A corpse. There were not many dead directly in front of us, but to the west, on our left, much higher up, in front of the skeleton remnant of a wood, lay a number of those motionless bundles, bearing witness to recent attacks. Thus the region opposite us was fairly uninteresting. Barbed wire, torn up earth, skeleton trees, and dead men's bodies. And the enemy was there at one hundred meters. I discovered this rather promptly, moreover, and had a very narrow escape. At a given moment, very early in the morning, I went into the communication trench that formed the eastern end of my trench. There was a large hollowed-out place through which one could get a better view of what lay in front of us. At the left, the ruined village. In front, the labyrinth of trenches and the skeleton wood. Suddenly, as if warned by some instinct, I turned away a little. Five or six bullets, undoubtedly intended for me, whistled through my window, one of them grazing my field-glass. Not a little shaken up, I left that dangerous spot. I soon began to laugh, however, and I should have enjoyed telling my neighbours, the Bosches, that they had missed me. 
but I was more prudent after that. Besides, everything was silent except for an occasional shell that passed above our heads and burst so far away that we could not hear it explode. Listening patrols, being useless during the day, were replaced by two sentries for each half-section who watched through the loopholes of the trench itself. The men in their warm dugouts smoked their pipes, ate, read, or played cards. If this is war, there are many of them, it isn't half bad. But like most good things, it did not last. At nine o'clock, a messenger came to tell me that the captain wanted to see me. I went to his headquarters, situated in the second line. Orders had just come. A French attack was to be delivered on the Bosch trenches to the north and east of Perth's. The plan was to attack at two other points, so that, once having taken the German trenches there, the whole system could be enfiladed. Our role was to put them on the wrong scent, and at a specified time to make as much noise as possible with our muskets and machine guns, in order to attract attention to ourselves at the moment when the main attack was being launched elsewhere. So I went back to my trench and gave the men the necessary instructions. About ten o'clock we were startled by four loud reports coming almost simultaneously. It was a battery of seventy-fives, placed two hundred meters or so behind us. At the same instant the shells went whistling over our heads and raised four black clouds in the trench opposite. It was the beginning of the bombardment. It was very violent. At the start we all ducked, but we gradually got used to it and learned to distinguish the difference in the sound of French firing. Posted at a loophole, I watched through my glass the effect of the bombardment. All the German trenches, as far as the eye could reach, were filled with constantly recurring explosions. They looked like an uninterrupted line of volcanoes. The noise and the superb masses of earth thrown up into the air fairly intoxicated me. The Boches in their turn began to answer, and, scorning us poor infantrymen, sent their shells far in our rear in quest of the gunners and their guns. The chorus grew deafening. The sensation was that of being under a roof of steel, invisible, but with the voices of all the fiends. And in the midst of all this din, two larks kept flitting about joyously, and mingled their song of life with the dull chant of the engines of death. When everything was quiet, I hurried to the captain to make my report. He was well pleased, congratulated me, and instructed me to congratulate my men. Our baptism of fire had been thoroughly first class, and we behaved rather well. As for the French attack, it had succeeded in seizing the extreme northern point of the German line. The rest of the afternoon was uneventful. Then slowly night fell. The order came to detail two men from each squad to go with tent sheets, under the conduct of the corporal on duty, to fetch rations from the kitchens. When we got back, we were rewarded by supper, consisting of sardines, roast meat, and rice, which we warmed on the braziers. After the meal I took a little rest. My two sergeants divided the rest of the night, and it was solid comfort to go to sleep snugly wrapped in my blanket, with my feet against the warm brazier. End of section 50. This recording is in the public domain.